Acts chapter 21, verse 37, through to Acts chapter 22, verse 29. And the soldiers were about to take Paul in, into the barracks. He asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Taurus of Silica, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. They were all silent. He said to them in Aramic, Aramic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to the Aramic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in, the, born in Taurus of Silica, but brought up in this city under Camille. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison. Also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companion led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, Receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our Father has chosen you to know his will and to see his righteousness, one, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words of his mouth. You will be his witness to all men and what you have seen and heard. And now, what you are waiting for, get up. Be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at, at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from synagogue to another went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. 
Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you away. I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voice and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As, a, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people was were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay big price for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realised he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Please leave your Bibles open there. Let's pray before we get into God's word. Father God, as we approach your word now, uh, we pray that your spirit would guide us. We pray that you would um, remind us of your work in our lives, of the difference that you have made to who we are, to our priorities, to the direction of our lives. And we pray that as we uh, look at these verses and think about how your spirit has been working in Paul's life, we pray that that would challenge us, rebuke us and guide us so that we might be more and more like your son. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There was once a man, uh, let's call him Frank. Now, Frank had everything he'd ever wanted. He was powerful, rich, and he had lots of people under his command. He was an important public servant. He could give a command and people would come running. He lived in a big house that was the envy of everyone else that had everything his heart could ever desire in it. And most of the people in his community, well, at a time when most of them were struggling to make ends meet, Frank was enjoying his financial freedom. Frank had it made, except for one thing. Frank was the least popular person in town. In fact, he was disliked so much that nobody wanted anything to do with him. He couldn't go down the street without having people cross to the other side of the road just so that they would run so they wouldn't run into him. And the reason no one liked him well was because Frank had been charging people more than they he, that he'd been supposed to. He was skimming a little bit from here and a little bit from there and all of this extra revenue was going straight into his own pocket which made Frank really wealthy, but also really unpopular. But one day, everything changed for Frank. One day, he heard that there was an important person coming to town. Everybody was speaking about it. People were travelling long distances to hear what this man had to say. And with so many people talking about this man, Frank wanted to go and see it for himself. 
and see what all the fuss was about. Trouble was, Frank wasn't very tall. And so he knew he was going to have a hard time seeing through the crowd, and so he came up with a plan. He ran ahead, climbed up a tree so he could get a good view over the crowd, and just as he got comfortable, the man called out, Frank, come down. Well, you probably figured it out now. He didn't actually call out, Frank, come down. He, he said, Zacchaeus, come down. The man, of course, was Jesus. And from the moment that Zacchaeus met Jesus on the road that day, he was never the same again. He stopped taking the money, that uh, skimming money here and there, and he repaid back everyone who he had wronged, but not even just what he'd owed them, not just what he'd ripped them off, but more than what he had taken. And he began to give money to the poor as well. And Zacchaeus was displaying the change that had taken place in his heart. He was letting go of the money and the resources that he'd once found his hope in. And he was doing all this as an act of worship to his Lord. And when Jesus saw the radical change that had taken place in Zacchaeus's life, he declared, today salvation has come to this house. The radical change that had taken place in Zacchaeus's life was plain for everyone to see. He was once a liar, a sheet, a man who would happily deceive anyone for his own personal gain. But after Jesus met him on the road that day, his life was changed forever. And he began to live a life of love and service as he put his newfound hope in Jesus on display. But that didn't stop the people around him, those who knew him, those who had spent years watching him rip people off, didn't stop them from questioning whether this change was real and second-guessing his motives for all this new behaviour. The change in his life was undeniable. The evidence was plain for all to see, which left those who knew Zacchaeus well to decide for themselves whether they believed he was Deluded, deceived, or a genuine disciple of the risen Lord Jesus. And that's exactly what's going on in today's passage. Only in these verses, it's the Apostle Paul who's providing his fellow Jews with undeniable evidence of the change that's taken place in his life. He's testifying about the difference that meeting Jesus on the road that day made in his life and he's giving his fellow Jews the opportunity to decide whether he is deluded, deceived or a genuine disciple of the risen Lord Jesus because whenever our hope, our hope in Jesus is on display, those around us will be required. They won't be able to help it. They will have to make a response. They will have to decide whether our faith, our change, the change in our lives, whether that's real or not. And so as this section begins, Paul's just been arrested by the Roman commander and his soldiers and put in chains. And as it turns out, um, 
by arresting Paul, the Roman soldiers had actually saved his life. Because if they hadn't, well, the crowd would have most certainly killed Paul right then and there. But even after the Roman commander had arrested Paul, there was still lots of confusion about who Paul was and why all these Jews were getting so upset by Paul's presence. The Jewish historian Josephus, you'll hear about him from time to time, uh, Josephus lived around this same time and uh, wrote the history of the Jews. And he wrote about an Egyptian false prophet who had stirred up a large crowd of followers for himself and who had promised that at his word, the wall of Jerusalem would come down. And when that would happen, they would be able to invade Rome and overpower the Romans. But when they tried it, what happened was quite different to what they'd expected. The Roman soldiers killed 400 of them and arrested another 200, and the rest fled for their lives. Now, after seeing the violent mob that Paul's presence had, had stirred up, the Roman commander came to the conclusion that Paul must be this Egyptian troublemaker. When Paul began to speak to him in fluent and articulate Greek, the commander realised that Paul wasn't this Egyptian troublemaker that he'd thought him to be. Paul explained that he was a Jew, and not just any Jew, he was a citizen of an important city, Tarsus in Cilicia. He wasn't from the back blocks, he wasn't a hillbilly, he was a well-spoken and articulate Jew. And so when Paul asked the commander if he'd be able to speak to the crowd, who was still quite an angry mob at the time, the commander obliged. Now, he was probably hoping that Paul could calm the crowd down, and I reckon he was probably also trying to figure out what all this was about. But the trouble was that as soon as Paul stood up in front of this huge crowd, he began to speak to them in Aramaic, which meant from the time that Paul stood in front of the crowd until they dragged him away at the end, the commander and his soldiers would have had no idea what Paul was saying. Aramaic, by the way, is uh, an ancient dialect of Hebrew. And so his fellow Hebrews would have uh, respected and, and been drawn to what he was saying because it was their heart language, their own tongue. But as Paul stood up in front of this angry mob, it was his love for his fellow countrymen, his desire to see them come to saving faith in Jesus that was spurring him on. Why else would he stand up in front of the same crowd who had just been violently beating him? Paul, he stood up in front of this, this angry mob. He motioned them somehow. It would be interesting to know what motioning the crowd looked like, but he motioned the crowd, signaling him them that he was about to speak. And when the crowd heard him speaking in their own tongue, in Aramaic, they became quiet. They wanted to hear what he had to say. Notice the affection that Paul uses as he addresses this, what, what was at the time a violent mob. This is the same mob that had been beating him so badly that 
He had to be carried out by the Roman soldiers. He couldn't even walk. And yet Paul addresses them as brothers and fathers. Paul wants them to know that he is one of them, that they are his brothers and fathers according to the flesh. These are his people. That's why he's speaking to them in their own language. And he's speaking to them with a great deal of respect. And what he shares with them is the undeniable evidence of what God has been doing in his life. Now, we're all quite familiar with the change in Paul's life. He began by explaining like what he was like before he came to Jesus. He was trained in the law of Moses. He grew up and became a passionate Pharisee. He studied under one of the most respected and important Jewish rabbis of the time, Gamaliel, and was so serious about following the law of Moses that he began to follow, to persecute followers of Jesus, arresting both men and women and throwing them into jail. So zealous, in fact, that he even planned to go to Damascus so that he could track down followers of Jesus and drag them back to prison. These were facts, facts that these Jews could go and check and verify. There was plenty of evidence that a big change had taken place in Paul's life. And what had made this change? Well, Paul says that Jesus met him on that road. While Paul was still trying to arrest followers of Jesus, Paul and his companions saw an incredibly bright light. Paul heard the voice of the risen Lord Jesus, and this light was so bright that it blinded him, and he needed to be led into Damascus, where the Lord had sent him to meet with Ananias. All of these facts could have been checked and verified by simply asking those who were there with Paul that day. Paul says that he was led to the home of Ananias and Ananias prayed for him and told Paul that the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. And of course, something like scales fell from his eyes and his vision was restored. The crowd listened while Paul said all of these things, which is remarkable. They were kept on listening right up until Paul told them this, that they, that the Jews would reject the word of God and that he had been sent far away to the Gentiles. When they heard that he had been sent away to the Gentiles, well, their voices were raised and they began to say, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Something that's easy to forget as we read these verses is that many of these Jews would have grown up with Paul. From a young age, he was sent to Jerusalem and grown up in that very city as he studied under Gamaliel. These people would have known Paul. They would have known what he was like before. And many of them would have been aware of Paul's reputation as a very zealous and passionate Jew. Despite being supplied with all of this evidence, 
of the change that Jesus had made in his life, their hearts were hard and they weren't willing to listen. When the commander saw that the crowd was becoming stirred up again, he told the soldiers to take Paul to the barracks to flog him until he told the truth about who he was and about why he was stirring up this crowd so much. Because, of course, the whole time he'd been speaking, the soldiers and the commander did not understand because Paul was speaking in Aramaic and not in Greek. All the commander knew was that Paul had stirred up the crowd all over again and he had no idea why. What was a complete mystery to this Roman commander? He wasn't the Egyptian troublemaker that he thought him to be. He spoke spoke uh, fluent and articulate Greek, and yet his presence in Jerusalem stirred up the Jews so much that they wanted to kill him right then and there. And the commander's confusion was only made worse when Paul, as one of the soldiers was about to flog him, told them that he is a Roman citizen. It was a serious offence for any Roman soldier or commander to flog a Roman citizen without having received a fair trial. In fact, the rights of a Roman citizen were so highly held that even the commander could have gotten in trouble from his superiors for having Paul put in chains. And so by the end of this section, the Jews had decided that Paul was a false prophet worthy of death. And the Romans, well, they were completely perplexed about what to do with Paul. Today's passage demonstrates that if our faith is in the risen Lord Jesus, and if that faith is on display, there'll be no hiding the change that Jesus has made in our lives. In Jerusalem, Paul was among his own people many of whom he would have known well, he would have grown up with, he would have spent time with before he came to the Lord. He spoke their language. He knew their customs. He knew their way of life. He had so much in common with them. And yet there was something profoundly different about Paul, something that couldn't be denied. Paul's life was radically changed by the good news of Jesus. And his hope in the risen Lord Jesus was on display for all to see. So these Jews in Jerusalem, well, they were left with a choice. Were they going to decide that Paul was deluded, deceived, or a genuine disciple of the risen Lord Jesus? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Paul was showing that he is a new creation in Christ. And if we are new creations in Christ, our faith in him will be on display as well. People won't simply be able to write off our actions as nice, wise or or lucky. If our faith is on display, then our lives and our motivations will be radically different from those who don't know the Lord. And that difference will demand a response. People will have to decide for themselves 
what has made this difference? Of course, some will reject it, some will accept it, and some won't want anything to do with it. But no matter how they receive our witness, if our faith is in Jesus is on display, the difference in our lives will demand a response. These verses show us that it's not what we have in common with others that will enable them to hear the good news of Jesus. It's not our convincing words, our clever arguments that will help them to believe. In fact, they even show that Paul's, testi Paul's personal testimony, something that was verifiable, something that was able to be checked, wasn't enough to change the lives of these Jews. Unless the Lord has opened their hearts, the hearts of those we witness to, they will not be able to believe. And that should, this should encourage us because we don't need to take it personally when people decide that we're deluded or deceived after hearing about the hope we have. Because we know that the only way they can believe is if the Lord enables them to believe. No argument we make is going to convince anyone. No experience we've had is going to change their life. But rather than being discouraged when people reject the good news and sometimes even reject our own personal experience, let's bring those people before the Lord in prayer, knowing that he is able to soften their hearts and to open their eyes to see the truth so that they might put their faith in him and believe the life-saving, hope-giving message of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that our lives would display the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, we live in a fallen world and we often wrestle with our old nature. We struggle to live the way you have called us to live. But in our struggle to live for you, we pray that those around us would see the hope we have, would see the purpose that you have given us through Christ Jesus, would see the love we have for others and that they would want it for themselves. Help us to be salt and light in our families, among our friends and in our community, Lord. Help those around us to see the hope we have in Jesus and to desire that hope for themselves. And Lord, help us to be prayerful for those around us who don't know you so that they too might have the hope that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.